The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, reading verses 17 to 23, and that's on page 671 in the Church Bibles. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet, they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun. All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson is found today in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the first chapter, and verses 17 to 23. Um, make that 18 to 23. Colossians 1, 18 to 23, page 1182 in your pew Bibles. Let us hear God's word. And he, that is our Lord Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, 
and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If my children want something really bad and I don't at first give it to them, what do you think they say? They say, pretty please? Now, I'm learning German, of course, and it's amusing to me that when I thank someone, I say, vielen Dank, to the pretzel man or something. They say, bitte schön, right? I thank the pretzel guy, and he says back to me, please, pretty? This is, this is really funny to me. I don't know why. In English, when we do something for someone, uh, someone responds uh, in two ways. Or rather, we thank someone for doing something for us. What do they say? They either say, no problem, or they say, you're welcome, right? On the surface, not a big difference at all. But uh, Fuller Theological Seminary uh, President Mark Laberton, he says, under the surface, this is a big difference. If we say no problem to someone, it's as though we are saying, well, this time it wasn't a problem for me. And it's, it's kind of a little white lie, too, right? I did something for you, and it took me time and energy, but I'm going to pretend like it didn't. So I say, no problem, no problem. Now, Laberton says that your welcome is completely different. Your welcome says what? It says, come on in. It says, mi casa es su casa. It says, it's my joy to do this for you. I hope that you'll ask me the next time that you have a need. Or as they say at Chick-fil-A in the United States, uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, our God, we're going to discover here, is not a no problem sort of God. Rather, he is a your welcome and my pleasure sort of God. In both the morning and the evening services, uh, for the foreseeable future, Sam and I are preaching about the identity of Jesus Christ in the early parts of the book of Colossians. Who is Jesus? We are asking. Last week, the answer from Sam's message was image, the image of the invisible God. Today, who is Jesus? Answer, reconciler, reconciler. Before we can celebrate Jesus as reconciler, though, we need to ask ourselves, what is the problem that needed reconciled? After we do that, then we'll ask, who is Jesus and how is his identity as the reconciler good news for us? And then finally, as we always should do, we'll ask, so what? What in the world does this mean for my life? What's the problem? Who is Jesus? And so what? First, let's look at our problem. 
you know what a meme is, right? It's an internet thing, right? There's, it's a, also a common viral saying or picture or something. There's a meme that I like, and it came from the film Ocean's Eleven, where a bunch of people are breaking into, I think, a casino. And one person failed to do their one job, and somebody said, you had one job. And ever since then, we've been saying that to one another when we fail. My family likes to say this when we drop something on the floor or um, blow out a candle and the wax spills everywhere. You had one job. Just for fun, of course. Adam and Eve had lots of work to do in the garden originally. But they really just had one job. Their job was to enjoy and to, en and to glorify their God and creator. And then an evil spirit in rebellion against God showed up in the garden as a snake. And Adam let that spirit say all kinds of nasty things, untrue things about God. Adam and Eve then believed this spirit speaking through a snake and they joined in that rebellion. Why is our relationship with God and for that matter with the whole universe so messed up? Paul says here in verse 23 that we were enemies with God in our minds before we ever did a thing that was actually evil or failed to do a thing that was good. Our minds were already set against our creator. As uh, Tim Keller says, the minute that you ask yourself, hmm, should I sin or should I not sin? You have already sinned. If you're trying to decide whether to rebel against your maker and creator, your heart and mind are already in rebellion. And when Adam and Eve sat and listened to the snake tell them a false story about God and what God wants, what God loves, they should have done their one job, right? And booted that rebel snake out of the garden. Instead, they started believing the story the snake was spinning. And ultimately, they joined Team Liar, and rebelled against their creator. Now, if in response to all of this, God said, no problem, then God would not be speaking the truth. It's a really big problem. And the result, as we read in Genesis 3, is first and foremost a broken relationship with God. Paul says here in verse 21, we were alienated from God. Now, in Adam, we used to walk around naked and unashamed in the garden. We used to talk with our creator like we were friends. And all of a sudden now we're hiding in the bushes. We're covering ourselves up with leaves. And because we were made in God's image, made to rule over earth in love as God's representatives, as his image, and in, instead we rebelled, this means that the results of our rebellion impact more than just our relationship with God. We invited, after all, the kingdom of darkness to come on in and start messing with God's world. Lies, betrayal, war, pain, pollution, famine, disasters, and ultimately death are the result. 
This is not no problem. Paul says elsewhere that the whole creation right now groans. The way that we feel about our work so often, as David read for us from Ecclesiastes, is the way that the whole creation feels because of our failure. Ugh, what is the point? Is the groan of creation and our groan as well. We had one job. It was not complicated and we failed. And it's not no problem. And that is the bad news. But who is Jesus, secondly? If our problem is this broken relationship with God and the result, a broken relationship with the world, who is Jesus and how is it good news? Well, when we rebelled in Adam and Eve, God sent us out of the garden where we can still work, but with a lot of trouble where we can have children, but with much pain, where we can live for a while, but where we will most certainly die. Is that the end of the story? Is that all bad news? Where do we get the first bit of good news in our Bibles? A lot of people say, and I think you're right, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first gospel passage. When God promised to send someone to crush the head of this lying serpent and to bring the world back into order by grace. This is definitely the gospel and it's surprising to read there. And it's astounding and it's beautiful and it's unexpected and it's most of all undeserved. The day that you eat it, you shall surely die. For God to make a way is grace. But I think actually the first time that we hear the gospel in the Bible comes a few verses earlier. The good news that God is looking to heal his relationship with us, to fix everything that we have ruined and to bring back the flourishing of creation. The first time that we hear this is when we read in Genesis 3 verse 9 that God did what? That he went into the garden and he went looking for Adam and Eve who were hiding, of course. And he called out to them. And what did he say? Where are you? Where are you? Now, the Lord knows all things and he knows what had happened. But his desire is to initiate reconciliation there. His desire bursts onto the pages of scripture right in the third chapter. One person says that we were so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, but we were so loved by God that Jesus was glad to die for us. And we could say in our context here that our rebellion was so serious that Jesus had to die for us, but God so loved us that he said, where are you? And then by pursuing us in love, by not saying to us, no problem, but rather, you are welcome. Christ shows that he was indeed glad to die for us. In verse 22, Colossians 1, God has reconciled us in Christ's death. 
And now there's no accusation against us if we're in him. There's no more hiding out of fear and out of guilt. No more pathetic attempts to cover over our shame. Think about this. We utterly failed to represent God in the world. Instead, we rebelled. Jesus represents God by doing it all right, by perfectly loving his heavenly father and by perfectly loving his neighbor as himself. By experiencing every bit of temptation that we experience and more, but resisting it. By standing loyal to God all the way till the end. And then Jesus, the perfect representation of God, turns and represents us. He goes to the cross and he suffers as a rebel there. In his physical body, verse 22, like ours. He lived our life, he died our death. And then he brings us to God and says, here is your daughter, here is your son, whom you love. I have brought them home. Reconciliation. What wondrous love that is. But that's not all. That's part one of Jesus as reconciler. And part two fixes the other problem. In our interconnected, technological, globalized society, it's become easier to see now how the actions of one person in one part of the earth affect lots and lots of people. For example, a president somewhere says something that's encouraging, and what happens to the stock markets of the world? A CEO of a major company announces disappointing profits. And what happens to that same stock market? Down it goes. And that's just the stock market. What Paul wants us to see here is that there is no place in all of creation where this astonishing news of peace through the cross of Jesus has not resounded. When Jesus breathed his last breath, you remember the temple curtain is torn in two. The earth quakes, the sky turns dark, and the dead rise from their graves. The forces of darkness in that moment were stunned. The angels in heaven erupted into shouts of joy and laughter. The news of this peacemaking event, the death of Jesus at the cross for us, sent shockwaves throughout the entire created order. And it still does every time we proclaim this good news and every time it's believed in faith. Isn't that astounding? Because through Jesus, our God has become reconciler for us. What's our problem? Cosmic rebellion. What's the good news? Jesus is reconciler. And lastly, what now? Well, I want us to hear at least three things from Jesus today. Thing number one, where are you? That's what God is asking. Where are you? He's saying, I have not just pretended like you didn't rebel. I have not just ignored the way you sit there and think, should I sin or should I not sin? Instead, I've come looking for you. And then I've done something about it all. 
about your heart, about your life, about your rebellion, about your shame, about your guilt. Where are you, Jesus says today? Will you come out of the bushes and stop covering yourself with pathetic suits made of fig leaves? Where are you today? What else does Jesus say? As Paul writes in verse 23 here, it's as though Jesus today is saying to us, stay with me, stay with me. We must, Paul writes, continue in our trust. Don't just hear this good news and say, okay, nice. But rather, Paul says, root yourself down in it deeply. Build your life on this foundation. On me, Jesus says. On me and in me. Some people get bored with this Jesus who is one piece with God for us. Others become, as Paul describes himself, verse 23, the servant, the bond slave of Jesus. So radically has he affected their lives. And Paul calls us to do the same. And these servants of Jesus As they become his bond slaves, they never, ever, Paul says, lose hope. No matter how messed up they realize their hearts can be at times, no matter how broken they find the world around them to be, they never lose hope. One of my mentors delights me every time he messages me or sends me an email or sends me a card in the mail. He always closes it the same way. Before he signs his name, you know what he writes? Not later, not sincerely, but he writes in capital letters, stand fast, stand fast. And I take it as Jesus' word to me that day when I read that, buddy, stand fast. And this is exactly what Jesus is calling us to. Do you want a life built on a foundation of unfailing hope? despite your failures, despite the brokenness around you, well then stand fast in my reconciling love. Where are you? Stand fast. And then lastly, yes, you guessed it, you're welcome. You're welcome. And he doesn't just mean, as we've said, no problem. But he also doesn't just mean I was glad to die for you. He does mean that. But he also means this. I'm reconciling all things to myself, not just you. You're welcome into the new world, into the renewed creation that you have longed for. I made the whole thing, and now I am, verse 20, reconciling the whole creation to my father and to yours. This is... As the hymn says, my father's world, and he shines in all that's fair, and I'm here to win it back. I've started that in my own body through obedience and then obedience even unto death, and then my resurrection. And one day, our reconciler says, I will make all things new. All things new. You're welcome. Welcome to find your place in my father's world. You're welcome to reflect my image once again as we represent my father here. You're welcome to imitate me as I do all things well, 
and as I make all things new. You're welcome to enjoy the world, to love it and to care for it the way that you were meant to. So there you have it. Jesus' three questions as reconciler to us. Where are you? Stand fast. You're welcome. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that by your mercy, we would find reconciliation with you. That we would rejoice in the hope that is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That we would trust him all of our days. That we would follow him. That we would stand fast, put our sin behind us, and delight in his will and walk in his ways to the glory of his name. Do this in our hearts, in our families, in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, in our church, in our city, and in our world. That Jesus might be all in all for us and for many others. We ask it in his great name. Amen.